Well, so great to be here this morning in this time of year. Uh, just to start us off with a, a question this morning. The question is, who do you identify with most closely in the Christmas story? You know, Mary? I don't know. Uh, Joseph? We don't know much, that much about him. The shepherds? Like, I don't like wild beasts that much. Uh, the magi? It's like, what even is a magi? Jesus? Probably not. Sadly, the person I most closely identify with in the Christmas story is the one that we might consider the villain of the Christmas story, and that's King Herod. And I think what we're going to discover is for most of us, uh, there's a little King Herod in in all of us. Uh, King Herod was the client king of Judea, which meant Rome made him the king. He wasn't even Jewish, which drove the Jewish people crazy. Uh, He was king of Judea in the time that Christ was born. He was very smart, very talented, very politically astute. He was very, very ambitious. He was known as a builder because he built the Jew- rebuilt the Jewish temple, he built fort cities, he built aqueducts, he built all kinds of things, and he was an extraordinary person when it came to his talent and his skill. And some fascinating background on this king that we're going to talk about this morning. Most of us in high school or college, we studied uh, the story of Julius Caesar. Uh, the, you know, the, the Senate murdered him in the Senate, you know, Etu Brute, many of us are, know that story. Uh, well, that's about 44 B.C., when he died, and his friend Mark Antony and his nephew Octavius, who eventually became Caesar Augustus, basically they decided they're going to avenge his death, uh, the death of their friend, the death of their uncle, so that they, they ended up going out and they began to destroy all the people that were responsible for his death. Now, think along lines, uh, the lines of Survivor or the Hunger Games, because while these guys were allies in the process of doing this, in the end, there can be only one victor left standing. And as all of Julius Caesar's enemies were destroyed, these guys began to gain more and more power, and each of them had an allegiance of a certain number of the Roman legions. Well, here's where King Herod comes in. So you've got Mark Antony and Octavius. They're both working together. They're both rising to power. And King Herod in Judea, he ends up befriending Mark Antony and his Egyptian wife, and some of you would know her name, is Cleopatra. Uh, The Roman citizens hated Cleopatra. They were afraid that she would be queen and bring some unity between Egypt and Rome, and they didn't want that. But because of his friendship and his allegiance, King Herod just continued to host parties with Cleopatra and with Mark Antony. He sent them lavish gifts. He supported them in a rebellion that they were were in, uh, part of outside of Alexandria. So over time, Mark Antony and Octavius had become more and more famous, more and more powerful, and eventually there's no stopping it. There's a civil war between them. And unfortunately for Herod, he bet on the wrong horse. Because Mark, Mark Antony is, and his forces are almost immediately defeated. He and Cleopatra, they hightail it back to Alexandria. And in a short period of time, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavius, becomes the very first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. Well, Herod, he's in Judea. He realizes, uh-oh, I backed the wrong person. And he's basically got one of three options. Uh, one is he can just kill himself and just get it over with. Two, he can just run, but they're eventually going to find him. They're going to track him down. Uh, The third was you can just hunker down and just hope that they ignore you. But Herod was so politically astute and he was ambitious and he was all about his legacy, he chose a fourth option and he did something unbelievable that turned out to be a genius political move. He got on a boat, he went to the island of Rhodes where he knew Octavius was, now Caesar Augustus. He shows up, he essentially knocks on the door 
and says that he wants to speak to the most powerful person in the world, and everybody's looking at him like, what are you doing here? You're an, you're an enemy of the state. We're going to come after you later anyways. And so Caesar Augustus, he hears who's arrived, this King Herod of Judea, the one who supported my adversary, yeah, he's here, and he lets him in, and Herod gives this spectacular speech in front of Caesar Augustus and everybody there, and he basically says, as you know, I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Antony, and as you know, I was his loyal supporter from beginning to the, through the Civil War all the way to the end. So what you know about me is that when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to them to the very end. And, oh, great Caesar, I pledge my loyalty to you. Well, Caesar Augustus, he's just so amazed, he's so impressed that not only did he not take the kingdom from King Herod, but uh, the kingdom of Judea, but he gave him Samaria, Jericho, and Gaza as well. And he sends him home. So that's King Herod, super bright guy, very politically astute and extremely ambitious. But the problem was, is the trouble was that he was so committed to power and to control and to his own legacy that he just made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Uh, you think, you know, men, you struggle with just one wife. He had ten, and he had one of them killed. He had a bunch of sons, and he changed his will four times. Like every few years, he'd go, you know, you're the right son to succeed me and be the king. He'd change his will, but then something would happen. That son wouldn't work out, so he would just have him executed. And, you know, after a while, it's like the remaining says, like, Dad, it's, it's really okay. I don't want to be king. Like, just don't, don't, you know. Herod was ruthlessly committed to growing and controlling his kingdom because he wanted a legacy. He wanted a legacy uh, that forever there would be somebody from his lineage on the throne of Judea. He killed one of his wives. He murdered so many rabbis in Jerusalem and Judea that the rabbis didn't want to come anywhere near the city of Jerusalem. Because when King Herod got mad, or if he perceived anyone was a threat to his reputation, or to his power, or to his control, he would do whatever he wanted to maintain control of the kingdom and control his legacy. So when we get to the birth narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ, King Herod, he's been in power for about 40 years. He's around the age of 70 at this point. He has a very painful kidney disease combined with a case of maggot-infested gangrene in a body area that I'm not going to explain this morning because all the men in the room would pass out. He's very, very sick. He's, he's trying to consolidate his power and to ensure that for generations to come, he, this legacy of his gets carried on, and then he gets the most disturbing news imaginable. And for us, this is typically the front end of where this Christmas story begins, he hears that five miles south of him, a new king has been born who is learning to walk. And here's how Matthew introduces the story. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, who rules Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, and now that you know some of the background of King Herod, imagine how this landed. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they're wandering around the city of Jerusalem going, hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We came to Jerusalem because it's the capital city, so we know that we're close. And everybody's like, shh, keep it down. When King Herod, king Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. And now that you know a little background, you understand why the whole city of Jerusalem was disturbed. Because when King Herod was disturbed, it was dangerous. When King Herod was disturbed, people died. 
He was likely to do anything that he could. And now that he's older, he's an older man, he's in pain, and suddenly his legacy, his future, his control of the kingdom is at risk. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and you can imagine how terrified these individuals would be, because when you got called into the presence of King Herod, if you were a Jew, you were scared for your life. So he's calling all the people who have all the religious power and all the religious insight. He calls them into one meeting, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. And like, you're the king of the Jews. You should know this. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this had been predicted over 500 years earlier. And so for Herod, this is like the worst news imaginable. So then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And then as soon as you find him, come let me know that so that I too could go and worship him. Well, after they heard the king, they went on their way. The star that they had seen when it rose it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, he saw the child there with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Now, see, we make the word worship synonymous with singing, but worship is really, it's about recognizing that you are in the presence of greatness. It's recognizing that, uh, that they're in, you're in the presence of someone in whom you should have awe, and then essentially doing whatever you need to do physically and mentally to surrender and submit to them. So these very wealthy men who have traveled a long way, they're in the presence of a baby who has no actual physical power, but because of who they believed this baby was, they dropped to their knees and they worshiped. And about five miles away, Herod is worried to death. It's like, anyone seen these guys? Anyone heard from them? Hey, go down the road, you watch for them. When you see them coming, let me know. I mean, he's so anxious about controlling things. And his whole life, his whole life has been built around preserve and protect and control. Preserve, protect, and control. And that's why I say when we pause to think about it, the fact is that there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. Because I'm like you. I don't mind leveraging God if it's going to make my life better. I don't mind... Leveraging God, if it's going to make my life better and help me build my kingdom. And I don't mind going to church or reading the Bible or maybe praying a prayer if I think that these things will somehow get God to help me to facilitate my preferred future. If so, then I'm all for it. But the idea of giving God this blank check with my life, of surrendering and saying, you know, God, you know, whatever it is, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? What's the assignment? What do you want me to do? Like, that doesn't come natural for any of us. Because there's something in me and there's something in you that feels, if I don't, it won't. If I don't work to set and control outcomes, no one will. It's up to me. I've got hopes and goals and dreams for my life. And if you give me enough time, enough influence, and enough money, I can make my, life, my hopes and my dreams come true. There's a little Herod in, in all of us. And Herod has just got his fist clenched and he's racked with pain and he's not about to bow his knee to anyone. The story continues, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And you hear the soundtrack in the background beginning to build up. 
And when Herod realizes that he has been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And when Herod was furious, people were terrified. Because when Herod was furious, people suffered and people died. Because, and men especially, we we need to listen to this. He had spent his whole life trying to control the future, control outcomes, control outcomes, control outcomes. No matter what didn't go as he planned, he was determined, well, I'll just fix things. And as men, that's like, that's our tendency. That's our go-to, right? We've got to fix things. We hear there's a problem. I can fix this. That's why I learned a long time ago as a husband, when my wife starts to share a problem with me, I'll think, just a second, is this something you want me to do something about or just listen? Just listen. I can do that, okay? But but, like, that's our go-to. And we're always trying to control outcomes. And many times in the end, we just make things worse. I mean, ladies, ever find yourself filled with anxiety of, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, and trying to control outcomes with your future? Ever find yourself filled with anxiety and to control outcomes when it comes to your children or when it comes to your relationships? There's a little Herod in all of us, and he was the master of controlling outcomes, so he thought. And that he'd figured out how to outsmart destiny yet again. He decided long ago, no matter what happened, he would do whatever it take. He would not be thwarted, certainly not in the end, by some foreigners, two poor Jewish parents, and a baby king. So he gave orders that we can't even imagine giving. He gave instructions to soldiers that we can't even, can't even imagine them following through unless you know the story of King Herod that he would have your whole family wiped out if you didn't do his bidding. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. If you're not going to identify the location of the one, we will just go for the nuclear option and we will just kill all the baby and toddler boys. And one horrible, horrible day, His soldiers rolled into the area of Bethlehem and they began to go into every single hut, house, and farmhouse, drag out any little boy that looked like they could be of that age and slaughtered them there in front of their families. And if family members got in the way, they just slaughtered them too. Have you ever really tried to wrap your mind around that? I mean, think of Mary. Imagine Mary. Mary lived her entire life with the knowledge that the effort to protect her son caused one of the darkest moments in history, a massacre, the violent death of helpless, innocent, terrified children, and indescribable pain to helpless mothers and fathers and family members. It's like, can you imagine carrying that? And then soon, probably that same year, Herod began to die a slow, terrible, painful death. Part of me feels like good. He started dying from kidney disease, this maggot-infested gangrene. In fact, it was so painful, he actually tried to commit suicide. No guns in the first century, so he opted for stabbing himself. And, but just as he was killing himself, his cousin walks in, ends up stopping him, ends up saving him. Herod continued to suffer. And then just before Herod died, he gave this command, I want you to round up all the influential, distinguished Jewish men in Jerusalem. I want you to put them in prison. And the hour that I die, you are to execute all of them because I want there to be mourning in Jerusalem the day that I die. Because he knew when he died, there was going to be a party in the streets of Jerusalem. Well, Herod died, 
And thankfully, they didn't follow his orders. They released all those influential men, and there was a celebration. Well, soon after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, go back to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life, they're now dead. And the man known as Herod the Great, who did so many great things, becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus, the toddler. Imagine trying to explain that to him his last few hours that he was alive. Like, Herod, I've got some good news and bad news. The good news is, 2,000 years from now, all over the world, in languages you can't imagine, in places that haven't even been discovered yet, people will gather in rows and circles, and they are going to read a story, and they're going to read about you. It's like, well, that's fantastic. That's been my goal. The problem is, the bad news is, you're nothing more than a background character, a footnote, and the story of a toddler who you tried to kill, who became the king and the savior of the world. People won't talk about what you built. They won't talk about the seaport or the aqueducts. The aqueducts. You won't be known as Herod, Herod the builder. You'll be known as Herod the butcher. And you were five miles away from the birth of the Son of God. And you missed it. An opportunity to truly be great. And decades later, Herod's gone. Jesus grows up to be a man, died on a cross, performed miracles, died on a cross, was buried, rose from the dead, hundreds of witnesses. He began the unstoppable movement that we call the church, that he called the ecclesia, the gathering, the movement. Decades later, Caesar is gone. Tiberius is gone. Nero is gone. The temple's been completely destroyed. Every single stone dragged and thrown over the edge of the temple mount. All that work, all those years, all that money, all the glory of the Jewish temple that Herod spent so many years, so much of his time, so much money, so much of his life developing, it's just all gone. And decades later, John, the apostle, who with his own eyes saw every miracle that Jesus did, all these things, saw Jesus do things that no one else had ever done. He watched Jesus die. He peered into an empty tomb who saw and spent time with his resurrected Savior. He's an old man now. And he's looking back on all of this narrative and he sits down to summarize it. And he says, in him, in this baby of Bethlehem, who grew to be a man, who was his friend, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind, not just for the Jews, but for everybody. He had come for all mankind. And then he writes this to send a message to you and a message to me. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, it looks like the Romans have won. The Jewish temple is destroyed. Ancient Judaism is gone forever. He is one of the last of his closest friends. I mean, think about it who decades before, as young men together, had shared the greatest experience of anyone, any adventure in all of history, past or present, as they went all over the place with the Son of God. And now his friends are all gone, each coming to a brutal end, and yet he looks back on all of that and says that Jesus right now, even Jesus was right. Even death could never stop what he began. He says that that life, that light, it continues to shine and it continues, continues to shine right now. And then he punctuates it with this powerful remark and the darkness cannot, has not overcome it. It cannot blow it out. And that brings us, brings us to you and to me. One day, someday, someone will stand up in front of a group of 
friends, family, and well-wishers, and they're going to tell your story. They will tell your story in relationship to the, the story of the light of the world. I mean, you know that. At your funeral, your memorial service, someone, probably someone who loved you, they're going to tell your story. And the question is, what will your story be in relationship to the light of the world? Will it be a story of the Magi or the story of Herod? Will your story be a story of worship or resistance? Will it be a story that you spent your whole life trying to build your kingdom instead of accepting the invitation to participate in God's kingdom? Will it be a story that you clung as tightly as you could to all the things that eventually you would have to give up anyways? Or will it be a story of a man or a woman who's always remained open-handed with everything that came their way because they realized it wasn't even theirs to begin with? Will your life and your story be a story about my way or God's way? My will or thy will? And the reason there's a tension and a struggle inside each of us is because we're human. And there's a little Herod in all of us. Several, friends, several years ago, a friend of mine, Shauna's, contracted an aggressive form of cancer. A young woman in her late 20s who up to that point had lived life doing what she wanted, when she wanted, with whom she wanted. And, and God could just mind his own business. But then she faced a crossroads because she had to face her mortality in an age much younger than most. And we had some intimate one-on-one conversations, and she had to make a choice about what she wanted to do with the light of the world. And in the end, she was just angry, and she wanted nothing to do with a God who would allow her life in this life to be cut short. Screw him were her exact words. In the final days, because it was clear she was not going to experience the outcome she wanted or was trying to achieve or what she thought she deserved. She made it clear at her memorial. God was to not be part of the equation. So at the funeral, the speaker, the family members who embraced her feelings and beliefs now talked about how now her spirit is floating among us, among the trees. And anytime you hear the leaves rustle in the wind, it's, it's her letting you know that she's okay that her life force is with us because that was somehow easier to digest and believe and embrace than the reality that there is a God who created us and loved us and had sent his son to be a light in the darkness that we all eventually face. One day, someday, somebody will tell your story in relationship to the light of the world and they will either have to make something up Or they'll be able to tell a story about how at some point in your life, even if maybe for a period of time you drifted, even though there may have been a time that you lost hope, maybe even though life had just worked to stomp all that faith and all that light and all that life out of you, in spite of all that, like me, at some point you reached a point where you recognized that there is an inextinguishable light available. And a life that came and comes through Jesus Christ, and at some point you came back. For some of you, even with all that darkness that you've experienced in your life, all that you've seen, all the struggle, the disappointment, the unanswered prayers, all the people who didn't follow through with you what they said they would do or were supposed to do, all the hypocrisy you've seen, whatever it is, all that darkness has still not overcome that light in you. And it's because the darkness cannot overwhelm and overcome it or completely blow it out. So I just want to encourage you, this Christmas season, as we move towards a new year, to just 
reflect on and ask yourself, is my life primarily about preserve, protect, and control, or follow, surrender, and trust? Because it might be time for some of you to loosen your grip, to let some things go, and to begin to renew your trust in your Heavenly Father and in following Jesus. For some of you, the truth is that deep down in an area or just life in general, you're keeping God and Jesus at an arm's distance, and you are still operating in the mode of preserve, protect, and control, and sitting on the throne of your life. And as we come to the edge of the new, new year, would you consider taking just a small step forward and engaging or re-engaging with the light of the world, the light of Jesus Christ. In, in, in just a moment, I'm, I'm going to invite those of you who at some point put the full weight of your life and your trust in Jesus and what he did for you. I'm going to invite you to go to one of the four stations, two on either side, and take communion because it's the exclamation point on this message. In fact, one of my favorite passages of Scripture are the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 12. The author in Hebrews 11, he talks about all these men and women who came before, who faced huge things, huge challenges, who demonstrated follow, surrender, and trust when they had every earthly reason to go the opposite direction. He, said, he begins the next chapter, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those that came before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for, for us, for each one of us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because if we start looking at everything else around us, it becomes so overwhelming and so distracting. Focus on the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he even endured the cross, went through that difficult, difficult thing, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him so that you don't grow weary and don't lose heart. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to not live life trying to preserve, protect, and control, but to live life instead, follow, surrender, and trust of his heavenly Father and ours. So in a few seconds, I'm going to pray. And then while the band plays, or while, actually while Zan and Ashley come and sing, here's just what I want to ask you to do. Whether you're agnostic or skeptical, I mean, you can, you can do this as well. But especially if your trust and your faith is in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you to just think about the ways over the last year that you've been in the mode of preserve, protect, and control, and just consider what would it look like for you to turn from preserve, protect, and control and turn towards follow, surrender, and trust. It may begin, be beginning to pray because you just honestly you haven't prayed in so long. It may be opening your Bible, your Bible app for the first time, Maybe the first time in a long time. Maybe this holiday season, just reading the book of John, just reading one of the Gospels. Because if Jesus did in fact predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, it means that everything he has to say has incredible relevance. Maybe it's deciding as we start the new year to get more connected, to become more consistent, or you know, just determine I'm done sitting on the sidelines, I'm going to take this next step, I'm going to plug in, I'm going to get more involved, more invested, I'm deciding that right now. Maybe follow, surrender, and trust is I'm going to be more generous, I'm going to help to fund the things that are important to God, I'm going to take advantage of the possibility of a year-end gift or giving increase in this next year. I don't know what your next step is, but the odds are you do. 
And so, after I pray, for those of you that are going to take communion because you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, just so glad that you're here. You can just chill. And uh, as us crazy Jesus followers, take communion. No one's looking down on you. We created this community with you in mind. But for the rest of us, before you take communion, I just want you to take a minute. Maybe with your head bowed, your eyes closed, however you want, but I just want you to pause during the music and consider what it would look like for you to turn from preserve, protect, and control in your day-to-day life and turn towards increased follow, surrender, and trust. So after I pray for those of you that will be taking communion, just take a few moments in your chair, prayerfully process that, and then when you're ready, just, just go take communion. Or you can take it, bring it back to your seat, however you want to do it. And then I'll come back up and and dismiss us. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. It's in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death, until I return. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so, so grateful for the text that we have, the opportunity to know, to know Jesus, to know your son, what he was like, what it cost. And Father, I just thank you that we get to be a part of the generations over hundreds of years have come before us and participate in, in, in this experience of communion, this sacrament. That this act in this moment in this big university building in 2022 connects us to languages and cultures and races through time all the way back to that room with Jesus and his closest friends and followers and so Father we do take this acknowledging what you've done for us and acknowledging the price that Jesus paid for us and I pray for each of us Father that you will bring right to the forefront of our mind what it is as we move towards this next year something that you've probably been bothering us about for a long time through your spirit that, Father, we'll take today and finally make that decision to surrender, to follow, to trust you with all of our life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I'm 54, and one of the things that I've learned at this point in my life is what we talked about today is trying to control outcomes is exhausting. So I really do want to encourage you as we come to the end of this year, that area where you're just so filled with anxiousness and stress, trying to control that, to just let it go. And to really lean into your Heavenly Father who can be trusted, even though you just not sure how it's going to work out. You don't see how it's going to work out, but give him a shot to show up. Let me pray for us one more last time. 
Father, I pray for all of us. I, I don't know what it is about us that we just feel like we got to get a grip on things and, and, and make things happen. And, and Father, just like all those that have come for, before us, it can just be so hard to trust you. I thank you so much that you're patient with us. You love us. You love us through all of that. But I pray for all of us as we begin to wrap up this year. For everyone listening to my voice and myself included, and in that those areas where we just got a death grip and feeling like it's all on our shoulders, that God, you would truly give us the courage to throw that on you and to trust you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.